Welcome to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. In this ever-changing world, it's essential to prioritize our children's emotional well-being. Lynn can show you how to learn and model healthy emotional habits for your loved ones and become a rock-solid support system for your family. Now, here's your host. Hello and welcome back. Thank you for following us each week as we delve into all things supporting our ours and our children's emotional well-being. I learned so much last week speaking with Danielle Bettman about how to get off of that emotional roller coaster with strong-willed kids. <laughs> wow, her her wisdom and expertise is needed and appreciated today. If you missed the episode, you can catch it now on any app or of course on Voice America Radio. Amber Raymond is our guest today, and she is a practicing clinician in social work. She's a Reiki master and the owner of Mess Makers Incorporated. That's M-E-S-S-S. We'll talk about that. She's offering one-to-one counseling as well as summer programs that guide kids in understanding what is going on inside of them, learning to master their emotions and discovering their truest potential. Amber has always wondered what makes us think, feel, and behave the way we do. With her education and experiences, her curiosity has blossomed into a full-blown passion for helping people develop the tools they need to understand the world within and around them. Her journey as a mother has motivated her to help parents and families proactively overcome life's challenges. And as an individual, a daughter, a mother, a wife, and an empathetic person, she faces her shares, she has faced her share of challenges obstacles that have encouraged her to look within and learn effective, practical techniques to overcoming internal conflicts. Her goal is to walk alongside those looking to achieve satisfaction and joy in life by growing more self-aware, self-loving, and resilient. And Amber and I have a personal and a professional connection we'll share with you as well. Welcome today, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, my honor and my pleasure, as I like to say. All right. First question always for every guest, what led you to where you are today? You're a business owner, a social worker, a parent, a spouse, and so much more, so many balls in the air. Yeah. I don't even know where to begin, but that, that introduction was beautiful. I got choked up a little bit. (laughs) Um, I think that it really stems from my childhood growing up. Like I, like you said, I kind of always wondered what was going on in other people's minds. And it kind of put me on the outside where I was just like analyzing what was happening and comparing myself to the other people. Um, Moving into high school, that became like a negative thing for me where I'd be like, well, why am I not like those people? And then it kind of pushed me down some dark paths where I was making poor choices, getting involved with really toxic relationships and Um, When I was 21, I found out I was pregnant and that is really what woke me up. Like having my son kind of saved me from that life of darkness. And I started seeing my own social worker so I could heal from the toxic relationship that I was in with his biological father. And that social worker, just like I met with her once and I was like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. So I started going back to school single mom the whole time and like there's a lot of challenges with that but there's a lot of um, pride and respect that I grew for myself in that process Um, after I graduated from the school of social work I decided to go back for my master's because I realized that's very valuable in society having that certificate (laughs) plus the education is great as well but um, that's what pushed me into social work and then when I started practicing it was right after like in the middle of the pandemic 
and I realized the need for like services for kids. My son was nine at the time and I seen him go from being a super social person, straight A student to not even handing in uh, assignments at school and really struggling with the lack of socialization and the the isolation that he was experiencing. So I was like, well, if he's been raised in this environment where we're used to talk about mental health and he's been encouraged to talk about his emotions, what are other kids experiencing right now? So that pushed me into um, running a children's program out of my house just to kind of increase that socialization for the summer. And every year since then, the parents have been like, are you doing it again? What are you going to do this year? So it's kind of just evolved on its own with the support from the community and parents who really benefited from it. So that's kind of what brought me to where I'm at today. And your summer program is continuing. I'd love to see it mirrored you know, across the world. Tell us a little bit more about why your summer program is so different than others that it's not oh. a child care center. It's very, very different. You're teaching specific things. Yeah. So the program itself, it started out with just like basic um, mental health theories and approaches and techniques that you would use on in one-on-one counseling with children to help them build mindfulness and self-awareness and empathy for others and like just confidence like that's what mess stands for it's motivation like being motivated internally empathy self-regulation self-awareness and social skills so that is why mess has three s's um, since the first year, it's evolved, and I've learned a, a lot from different modalities of healing, um, including sound therapy and Reiki, so energy healing, and um, just there's so much more encompassed into it. So there, it's a 12-day program each day builds off the net of the previous day and it just focuses on helping kids look within and discover who they are how do they feel those different emotions and then once they discover how they feel maybe like one of some of us feel anger by like our face is getting hot other people will notice their heart is beating faster so feeling emotions is a very individualized experience and when we can look within and be aware of that then we are more capable of controlling that which is where the self-regulation piece comes in so the program after teaching kids how to feel these emotions teaches them how to regulate these emotions also in an individualized way because some people really resonate with texture some people resonate with sound some people resonate with smells so finding the things the coping skills that work for you individually is what's going to bring that success um, the next thing that the folk that it focuses on the program is respectful communication so that's respectful communication within how do you communicate with yourself in your mind who is that part of you are you listening to your heart are you listening to your fear but also how are you communicating your emotions respectfully to those around you so that people understand what's going on within you and then the last section of the program teaches like goal setting for the future. So what are your specific gifts? What are the four or five things that you individually are amazing at? And how can you use that to make a future for yourself that makes you happy and excited to go to work and be part of the community? So um, yeah, I get really passionate about it. When I talk about the program, it's, it's changing lives. Uh, and if I had a magic wand, <laughs> wouldn't it be wonderful if this was in every child care center? Well, we could talk about mindfulness in classrooms as well. Uh, summer camps, this is something that can be embraced and 
and shared uh, through some some training. Obviously, the, people who are offering this kind of thing do need the training as you've had. But I'd love to see this mirrored, as I said in the intro, across the world. <laughs> All right. Oh, wonderful. And what you said about the pandemic, too, um, Amber, our kids... I've talked to people all around me and you will talk a little bit um, about your practicing clinician as well, what you're seeing in youth in just a little bit. But uh, our kids are still in this comfort zone that we taught them was the safe place to be. A lot of them are still stuck there. And that first step in getting out of it and finding something that brings them joy is a huge, huge, huge piece. So I thank you for recognizing that during uh, COVID and continuing the work to help, help me and help other podcasters and anyone else who has a voice like you do to be heard. Thank you. Makes me happy to do it. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to move into, so um, processing our emotions. How do we find, what are some ways that we can get those emotions out of us in a positive way and teach our kids to do the same? We know it's healthy to be talking about our feelings, to recognize our feelings. How do we do that? Some of the concrete things um, that I often recommend or things that work for me and my family. Um, they're very individualized, like I said before. So some people need physical things to release those emotions. Other people like emotional things where they might cry about it, but oftentimes we stop ourselves from crying. So it's almost like we're bottling up these emotions. Um, if you like to do physical things, maybe you do sports, maybe you like um, kickboxing or things like that to kind of get the physical piece out. But it's really important to be getting these emotions out in all four areas of your life. So mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. So what works for all those things for me is journaling. If I have something going on in my mind and my mind is racing and I can't figure it out, I always imagine that it's like this little kid that's like, mom, 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 mom. And it's like screaming at me, my this my this voice in my head. But as soon as I write everything that my this voice in my head is saying, it's almost like telling this little kid, I hear you, I validate you, I got you. And then they go away. And then that voice isn't racing inside my head anymore. And in the process, I'm understanding what's going on inside of me. When I journal things out, I can reflect on it. And when you understand something, it's the start of the healing process. If you fully understand what's going on inside of you, you are, you are a lot more likely to heal from it and move through it and cope with it. Oh, I, I have to jump in with a little, uh, uh, really, well, <laughs> a connection. Uh, it'll be 10 years, 10 years ago on August 7th that I had my brain surgery. Uh, my craniversary is coming up. I said that in our introductory episode, but journaling is what got me through. Uh, and I journaled when I was a teenager. I journaled on and off, you know, until my third child was born. And then it kind of <laughs> went by the side for a little bit. What? But, you know, you can put anything on paper anything on paper, your fear, your and anything, your anger, you can shred it, you can file it away. But once it's out there, it does help you. It helped me tremendously to get to the next big question. All right, what am I going to do about this? What are my options? What are my choices? What do I have control over? Mm -hmm. uh, journaling works for me too. It doesn't work for everyone, of course. Um, but it's a, for me, it was fantastic. As I've already said, repeating myself. <laughs> I think like I think one of the things that I've seen is a big barrier to journaling for a lot of people is they they get these beautiful notebooks and these nice pens and then they're like, well, what do I write? Mm. So what started me into journaling was finding lists of journal prompts. So every night before bed, I would have these prompts. Like I'm pretty sure you actually offer them on your website. 
I do 30 days of writing prompts. I do. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) And to write, you can always find prompts. And there's a lot of really thing, really amazing uh, resources just on Google even to help you stimulate those thoughts as a proactive way of getting the emotions out. I always imagine that our emotions, like if we have this, if we imagine a giant soup pot, and this pot every time we go through something emotional or traumatic it's like putting water into this pot and scooping and scooping and scooping putting more and more water into this pot if we don't do something to get the emotions out eventually our pot is completely full and then the next time something emotional happens we blow up because our pot is overflowing but it's not always that specific thing that makes that's making us blow up that is the cause, the root of everything, right? It could be something that happened when we were four years old that's still sitting in your pot rotting. So by journaling and finding ways to get those emotions out, by talking with loved ones that you feel safe with, um, just like labeling your emotions and understanding the goods and the bads of every situation will help you empty your pot so that at the end of the day, you can take on anything that comes at you. And being kind to ourselves, that self-compassion piece too, that you've taught me so well. <laughs> it's okay to feel these ways. Our emotions are telling us something we need to le- learn to listen and respond. We'll talk a little bit more about how, how do we get our kids to get their emotion emotions out as we move on through. All right, let's talk about communication between parent and child, which is so, so, so critical. Um, you said to me the word transparency. So transparency for me is like the root of what communication means for me. So when we're communicating with our children, it's important for us to tell them how we're feeling and normalize that communication around emotions and tell them like, it's okay to talk about these things. Oftentimes, even with my own son, sometimes he'll be like, mom, am I, am I allowed to cry over this? Can I cry for this? Or should I be angry over these things? And it's their way of learning about the situation. So by being open and honest and transparent about all the topics that they come to you, obviously within reason, like we're not going to be talking about inappropriate things with the children. But like, when it comes to emotions, it's really important to just speak your truth and let them see the reality of things. I think there's a line there, right? Um, So if I'm if I'm someone who has not been able to manage my emotions, that's not the transparency that we want to have with our children, right? We want it to be kind and, and courteous and respectful of each other. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, and that's a big piece for us as parents, right? Figuring out what triggers us and, 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 and what we're going to do about it. I think I had a guest on uh, previously who was talking about, you, you know, just, I am really angry. I'm really angry because this happened and this is what I'm going to do about it. And they model what their coping strategy is, whether or not that's going out for a walk or listening to music or dancing in the living room, or just saying, I need some time to myself. And then coming back and being calm and, and saying, oh, that really worked for me. That's a positive modeling. It's a way of communicating that, hey, this is an okay emotion to have. And this is how I handled it. Yeah, normalizing it. Because I know a lot of like grown people that like don't even feel comfortable talking about their emotions or they just suck it up. And that's like basically like putting a pot on a, a lid on your pot and not letting anything bubble out. So you're just like waiting to explode. Um So I think that the more that we normalize the conversation around emotions with our kids, it will help us heal, but it also makes them feel okay sharing those emotions with you. As parents, I know we all want to know what's going on with our kids. We want to know if they're sad. We want to know if they're mad. But a lot of the times 
kids might not feel comfortable coming to us and saying, hey, I had a really terrible day at school today and I had a kid pick, pick on me today or I feel really angry about how I did with my test. But the more that we talk to them and tell them about how we're feeling, the more they feel comfortable coming to us and we're building that safe space because of the transparency between us. I think what your generation is doing is brilliant. I'm happy to be on board with it now, but it is generational. Um, my generation, two generations after me, maybe even three, suck it up, buttercup, you said it is exactly the way we were raised. So for us to make that step, to start to talk about our, our emotions, you know, it's a lot easier for some of us than others, but uh, a huge step. And I, I thank you again for leading the way. <laughs> it could start with something just simple, like, um, you tell your kid, oh, like, how was your day today at school? And then you guys can talk about maybe one thing that went great, one thing that didn't go great. And then you have that normal routine at the end of the day where you're just used to talking about your emotions and it becomes normal. So that's and an finding the time, right? Putting time aside that one to one, two to one, three to one, five to one, whatever the size of your family is to actually have the, that time as opposed to we're all on this go, go, go treadmill, it seems these days, right? Where there's always something to do, something to do. And finding a way to get off of that and just making time for ourselves and our families. Yeah, it's vital. It's vital. Well, we are about to head off to break. Um, we have been talking about processing our emotions and communication between parent and child. But when we come back with Amber Raymond, we're going to be talking about does an emotional age of a child match the chronological age? Very often they do not for a variety of reasons. We'll find out what we can look for and what we can do about it. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. <laughs> Our children are growing up in a world that is more complex than ever. It's time to start thinking proactively. Meet Zerko and the children who glow in the color they are feeling because they haven't learned to control their emotions yet. In the Power of Thought Children's series, we're not only teaching children about emotional vocabulary, but how to recognize how they are feeling and what they can do about it. We live on an imaginary planet called Tezra, where every character is named after a crystal. Each of the five books in the series takes children into a situation they can relate to, but teaches problem-solving skills and evidence-based strategies they can use for life. This series was developed in collaboration with clinicians, educators, parents, and guardians, and it's the winner of the Mom's Choice Award. Check it out at lynnmclaughlin.com under the Books tab. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you feeling confused by all the medical information out there? Listen to Healthy Wealthy You to learn strategies that will help you create a personal approach that finally works for you. 
It's you living your best life. Healthy, Wealthy You with host Dr. Camille Vardy. Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You are listening to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. Have a question for Lynn or her guests? Join us on the show at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Now, back to the show. And welcome back. We're with Amber Raymond, a practicing clinician, social worker, Reiki master, and business owner. We've just talked about how do we find ways to get the motions out of us as adults when that's not the way we were raised and how do we take our first set steps and second steps so we can model properly for our kids. We're jumping in now on emotional age versus chronolo- chronological age. They often differ. And so, Amber, why is this so important? You know, I think about, we all understand child development in terms of those big milestones, right? You know, when they first smile, when they take their, you know, um, say their first word, they crawl, they take their first step. Uh, as a teacher, I know about, you know, the stages of play, but I don't think a lot of us understand emotional age versus chronological chronological ages. And then we're going to get into psychosocial development in a minute. So there's, for me, there's multiple ages, like your chronological age is how old you are from the date of birth. So I would be 35 because I was born in 88. But mentally, we can also gauge who we are mentally based on our psychological capabilities. So like our IQ, to develop what your ment- your emotional age is, it's really to look at the person's outlook on life and their behaviors. So basically, our behavioral maturity will be our emotional age. So for example, if you have like a 45-year-old man who decides to stick his fingers in his ears and go, I'm not listening, that would be something like noticeable that we would be like, oh, okay, that's something like a five-year-old does, right? So emotionally, that man is somewhere around five years old. Mentally, he could have an IQ of 60 years old if he is smarter than the average 40-year-old. So it's it's very interesting to look at a person based on their physical, mental, and emotional because it all comes together and it all impacts the person's behavior and their outlook on life. Emotionally, if a, if a child has experienced or an individual at any age has experienced a lot of trauma when they were a kid or at a certain age, they may be stuck emotionally at that time of trauma where they weren't able to percent, progress past that age. So, for example, um, a child who maybe has been uh, neglected or abused at nine years old might grow up to be like 35 and notice that they're still behaving like a typical nine-year-old because they haven't been able to overcome and process and understand that trauma from when they were nine. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. So how, how can I tell if my child, so if, do I look at my child and say, I'll just pick one child and say, okay, this is the way I see them behaving. How do I how do I tell that their emotional age is different than their chronological age? I think that it's important to recognize what are the milestones emotionally for children. So like um, typically, like if, say, someone is having a really hard time processing emotion, if someone has a really hard day, they might regress and have like an accident when they're when they go to bed, like they might wet the bed 
that is something typical of like a two-year-old maybe. So maybe at that time they're behaving like a two-year-old. So it's really paying attention to the specific behaviors of your child and and like looking into it. Like how does that speak to the general population? At what age do most children develop that um that level of confidence or that level of self-love at what age do they develop trust with the world around them? And then you can kind of gauge where your child is sitting with that. All right, let's dig deeper on that uh, and go specifically into the eight stages of psychosocial development that many of us recognize through Eric Erickson, um, looking at how our personality unfolds based on those conflicts that we endured from our environments to the choices that we make. And his stages take us from infancy right into old age. I think this is really important to understand. Absolutely, especially when you're looking at the emotional age. So in the first stage of Eric Erickson, it's birth to 18 months. The The whole goal of this is to learn to trust those around us. So um, because we're completely helpless at this age, we depend on others to care for us and show us love. So if we receive good care and love when we are needing it, like if we cry and we're hungry and our parent shows us that and we, they give us the food and they meet all of our needs, then we generally learn to feel safe and secure in the world around Around us. Alternatively, if we don't receive the care we need or we're left crying all the time or our diaper isn't changed or we aren't fed, then we struggle to trust and we generally feel fearful of the world around us. So if you have a kid who at like 10 years old is kind of scared of everything, then there's a chance that they have not developed this trust versus mistrust stage. And this is also could be even impacted by the pandemic. I think it really regressed a lot of people to feel trust in the world. I was just going to say, sometimes the uh, the reasons for that are, are not easy to find. Right? Yeah. And it's not always like specific to the parent. Like it could be something that happened like just in the environment. It doesn't always have to be the parent's fault. Oftentimes that who that is who is responsible between birth and 18 months. So like usually that's where the challenge can be found. But it's not about like blaming or criticizing or anything. It's just recognizing that this is something that maybe we didn't do great at and we can do better now. So then so you could, oh, sorry. You. Okay. So it could be something like illness, a car accident, yes, um, things that happen to us that we have no control over. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the second stage is called autonomy versus shame and doubt. This stage goes from um, age two to three. The main goal is to start feeling confident in yourself and making choices and feeling autonomy. So if we're success, if we successfully complete things like toilet training or being allowed to have more control over the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the toys we play with, things like that, then we learn autonomy. We learn that we have successful control over who we are as a person. And that helps us feel more secure and confident in who we are. Alternatively, if we fail to gain autonomy in these years, like say like, um, something in the environment is over controlling or doesn't allow the child to make choices for themselves, then they would generally feel more shame and doubt. Like they aren't confident in their ability to take, make choices because they're like, well, I've never had, to, I've never successfully made choices in my life. Mm -hmm. You're mirroring exactly what Danielle Bettman said last week as well. This is the terrible two stage where they're trying to tell us I want control. <laughs> yeah. Give yeah. me choices, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Oh, yeah, I always think about my niece when I think about this one because she's the I do, I do always. We <laughs> just so laugh about it because she's so independent, like everything she says, I do until she realizes it's something that maybe she can't reach or whatever, right? But it's really interesting when you look at these stages and really study these stages, how you can recognize when kids are sitting or even adults. Like I know like 50-year-old men that are sitting in some of these early stages because they haven't been able to process things that happened in their childhood. So it doesn't matter how old you are, you can get stuck anywhere in these. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the third stage is initiative versus guilt. This is three to five. The main goal is to start feeling like you are capable and competent. So you learn to feel confident in who you are. Um, at this stage, you learn to assert yourself in social settings. So school is really important. Other social settings is really important. If we succeed, we would develop initiative and generally feel more capable of and competent in our skills. But if we fail, if we fail this stage, we might be left feeling more guilt and self-doubt, like, oh, I'm not good enough. I don't know if I could do those things. And then again, you don't feel like you can make choices or be independent. So that's a major problem. So what do children need specifically in that stage? They need to be going out into social settings and experiencing all the different, um, all the different environments and just being told that they're good. Like they're able to um, go to school and feel safe at school and they have good teachers and they get to try out for teams and those different things that show them that they don't have anything to feel guilty for. Like, it's almost like learning that they're good people versus being bad people. And so that then- the risk take, this is the risk taking stage yeah. where we say it's great. Yes, let's do it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so the main goal is to develop initiative. Like, like I can go out and do these things successfully. So going to school and not having negative experiences, okay, I'm going to build my initiative. And then you start feeling motivated to actually go out and try new things and experience new things like that. And so this is a tough one, especially with the little, little, little people that are still dependent upon us when they take a risk and they fail, right? And they haven't done well, or they've fallen and they've gotten hurt when they've tried, you know, the first ride on the bicycle. Mm-hmm. It's important for them to fail so that they can get back up and say, all right, I'm going to try this again. Right. And then for us to just be there, like, I think a lot of the times too, and this is something that I, I probably didn't do great when my son was younger, but like, I learned real quick what was wrong. Um, when they fall or they hurt themselves, if we have like a big reaction, that's how they're going to react. And they're going to think it's like, like catastrophic, right? But if we Mm. just go, ooh, like, that's how we want them to react. So the way that we react to situations will very deeply impact the way that they react to situations in the future. So if they fall and hurt themselves, and we're like, ooh, that looks like it hurt, then they'll be like, oh, that looks like it hurts when they fall next time. So then they learn that it's not a huge deal that they can keep pushing through and that they are competent. Sorry, they are competent and capable of doing the next, like trying it again. And this is a time to talk about our fe- their feelings as well and your feelings. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Let's move on to the next stage. Okay. So the next stage is, in, they call it industry versus inferiority. So um, the main goal of this is to de- develop a full sense of confidence in who you are. So if we are encouraged to improve our abilities or to try new things and accomplishments, um, and then we are commended when we do great, then we will develop that sense of confidence. But if we're discouraged or ridiculed by a parent, teacher, peers, or anybody in your environment for trying something and failing, then you are going to feel like you're not 
like you won't be confident in who you are. So it kind of matches with the previous one, but in the previous section, the kids are three to five, so they don't have as many opportunities to go do things independently. So it's more about the parent being there to push them to do it. And then once they develop that sense of initiative in the previous stage, then in the second one, they go out and they do things on their own. And then they learn it from more than just the parents. They learn it from the teachers. They learn it from their peers. But say like, you're like seven years old and you do a presentation in front of the class and everybody laughs at you. That could be something that sticks with you forever and makes you doubt your abilities. Oh, you bring a memory to me. Oh my goodness. My yeah. first day in grade four, three, three schools in grade four, just because our family was moving and the teacher asked me to read. I could say her name. Yes. I remember, I remember it vividly and the whole class laughed because I was reading too quickly, but I, I still carry that with me today. I, I just seriously, you're so right. And yeah. I would have been nine years old. Okay. There you go. There you go. <laughs> right in the middle of it. Superiority. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, we're not, I don't need to go through all of them, but the next one is really good for, I think that a lot of teens are struggling with this one right now. So the, the next stage is in identity versus confusion. It goes from age 12 to 18. So basically this is the time where kids are going to either learn to be confident in who they are as an individual, understand who they are as a person in comparison to the red, like general society, or they're going to get confused and they're going to have no idea who they are growing up. So in our in their teen years, they can receive affirmations for their ideas, their values and their sense of self. Um, and they can receive very or they can re receive various forms of rejection. So if someone comes and says, oh, yeah, like I really like wearing tie dye and I really like these shoes and this is who I am. This is part of my identity. This is my hair. And they're made fun of for that. Then they're going to be like, well, I don't know if I should be that. Like, and they'll start questioning who they are, why they act the way they do. They might question their gender. They might question like everything about themselves, because when they went out and showed themselves to the world, they were rejected or ridiculed. Oh, I see. And so I just want to make a connection because I find this so fascinating. If we expect a 12 year, uh, I'll, I'll go back to a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old to, to know their identity, right? They're not at that stage of development in their psychosocial development yet. So I think it's fascinating. And, and I, I realize these ages are, they're flexible. It's not 18 years exactly. You know, there's there's time in there because everybody develops at a different stage. But there's to me, there's two different re reasons to understand this. First of all, are we expecting our kids to be able to be competent in something that they can't because they haven't gotten to that stage yet? And secondly, being aware of what we need to give them through each one of these approximate ages. Yeah. And like the stages of Erickson, you could Google search them. Almost every platform is generally the same. Like you can learn a lot from just recognizing what that development is for a child. Like right now, kids need to develop more mental, emotional skills because of the world we live in. So this is a really vital thing that has helped me become a better parent. And it's something that I recommend to a lot of the parents that I work with is just understanding where your child is and how you can help them progress through the stages the way that they want to progress like at a subconscious level. Excellent. Okay. That I'm going to take you over to ask you to put your social worker hat on right now because you're seeing youth every day in your practice. What is the most prevalent concern that you see uh, of, of young people coming to you as a clinician today? I would say loneliness. And I think that it relates to the identity versus confusion stage of Erickson, because I think just from having a child go, go through 
grade school, they're told that everyone needs to be invited to birthday parties and everyone needs to like everybody and all these things. And for me, that is somewhat detrimental to the the way the child sees the world, because then when they're 15 and they're not getting along with everybody at school, well, maybe it's a them problem right? If everybody's supposed to like everybody, then how come nobody likes me? And the reality is, is that we're not going to like everybody. I don't like everybody. I'm sure not everybody likes me. And it's okay. But they're being taught from a really young age that everybody needs to be friends with everybody. Like my son can't even bring birthday or uh, invitations to birthday parties to the school, unless he's going to invite every single person in his class, because it's not inclusive. And like, I understand that perspective, but also the way that that impacts the kids when they reach that 12, 13, 14, like when they get to high school and they don't have any friends, they're like, well, how come nobody likes me? I must be broken. It's like, no, you just have to find the people you align with, the people that are worthy of being in your life, the people that are on your level, maybe at an emotional level, you're 18, but you're actually 12 chronologically. So you're trying to hang out with a bunch of 12 year olds when emotionally you're 18. So it's really important for, for kids to understand, for youth to understand that people need to be worthy of being in their life. They need to be aligned with them instead of trying to be friends with everybody. Wow, that's tricky. It's, it's it's really tough in this day and age with all of the social pressures, which takes me back to what we were just talking about with Erickson. And in that stage where you, if you can give them as many opportunities to be socially connected, that's going to help them later in life. Yeah. Wow, my goodness. Okay, we're heading off to another break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the American Library Association Conference coming up in Chicago and several other things about our and our children's emotional health. We'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. (laughs) Our children are growing up in a world that is more complex than ever. It's time to start thinking proactively. Meet Zerko and the children who glow in the color they are feeling because they haven't learned to control their emotions yet. In the Power of Thought Children's series, we're not only teaching children about emotional vocabulary, but how to recognize how they are feeling and what they can do about it. We live on an imaginary planet called Tezra, where every character is named after a crystal. Each of the five books in the series takes children into a situation they can relate to, but teaches problem-solving skills and evidence-based strategies they can use for life. This series was developed in collaboration with clinicians, educators, parents, and guardians, and it's the winner of the Mom's Choice Award. Check it out at lynnmclaughlin.com under the Books tab. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. 
You are listening to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. Have a question for Lynn or her guests? Join us on the show at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Now, back to the show. And we are back with Amber Raymond. We have talked about so much emotional age versus chronological age, psychosocial development through Eric Erickson, and uh, behaving emotionally. How can we tell if our kids' emotional age is different than their chronological age? You just heard a commercial, a little promo during the break about a children's book series called uh, The Power of Thought. And that is the professional connection that Amber and I, and I have. And it started two years ago, January, when I was out for a walk and I had one of those aha moments and I thought about that. Why are we so responsive? Why do we wait to you know, do something about our own physical and mental health rather than being proactive, which is part of the reason we're all here today. I called Amber, who is also my niece who was finishing her Master of Social Work at the time and asked her if she would like to write a children's book series. And here we are today, five books in hand. And Amber is about to go to the American Library Association Conference in Chicago on June 24th with those books. What else would you like to share about them, Amber? Um, I'm about the books or about the the ALA? (laughs) Oh, both. It's all connected. um, The time that I'm going to be actually signing books um, at the American Library Association is nine from nine o'clock to 11 o'clock on June 26th or June 24th. My bad. June 24th (laughs) from from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. I'll be setting up a station with all of our books and you can come meet me there. Um, about the books themselves, though, they've really evolved into something that I'm very excited and proud to share with people. They started out as this just fun adventure that I went on with Lynn, and um, I've learned a lot from it. I've connected with a lot of great people because of it. I've just really, I'm really grateful for where it's taken me. And the the premise of the book series, we beam kids off to this fictional planet, as you heard, but every book teaches an evidence-based strategy. And it's not just a book, it's a program. There's an educational guide that comes with it. What do you ask? You know, if you're a teacher out there, you know what I'm talking about. Look at the cover. What do you think is going to happen? Then during the book and after the book. And then we have these caricature um, sketch think tank activities. So children can take that strategy and apply it to their own lives. It's been such a pleasure working with you on this, Amber. We're not done yet. Lots more to go. Book five is just coming out this week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So we're going to move into something else called love language. And if you're my age, you probably are like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, Amber and I have been going out and doing uh, parent evenings and uh, events with parents and guardians around emotional well-being. And she suggested we talk about love language. And I was like, oh, why would we talk about intimacy between two people? (laughs) We're going to talk to parents and guardians about their children. And I learned so much more. And I'm so thrilled I know this. Talk to us about love language, Amber. Okay. So love languages is a lot more than romance between like uh, two partners, like husband and wife or boyfriend, girlfriend or girlfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is for you. Um, It's about communicating the love between two people who should show love to each other, right? So we love our children. 
but how do we show them that we love or will you love them? We might like if you are a person and your love language is physical touch, you might hug your child or brush your fingers through their hair or hold their hand or whatever that looks like for you. But if your child's love language is acts of service and they like when you do things for them, then they might not be hearing that love the way that you are sending it. So I always imagine the love languages as if they were actual languages. So visualize um, someone who speaks Chinese and someone who speaks German and someone who speaks uh, English and they're all yelling, I love you at each other. And nobody's understanding what they're saying because nobody speaks each other's language. So you can Google search the love language test and you can figure out what your love language is and you can figure out what your children's love language is so that you can better understand how to show them that you love them. Because showing your kids love is one of the vital needs that they need to feel safe and secure in the world, which they need to feel confident in who they are. Yes. So if you're giving love in the way that they don't receive it, <laughs> that's what's happening. And I just want to do a little addendum to this because I found it fascinating. It's a questionnaire and there's there's different ways of doing it based on age. So if you have a child with a disability, for example, you can read the questions to them. You can use sign language to read the questions to them and uh, log in the answers and then find out what their love language is. Um, so there's, I think, three different Three different ones, Amber? Five. There's five love languages. So there's physical touch, acts of service, um, gifts, words of affirmation, and quality time. So if your child is one who needs physical love and that's not what you give, then that child's not feeling it. Exactly. Yeah. I meant in terms of the three, are there three different types of surveys they can take? Like by age. Is oh, there right. an adult yeah. one? Uh, yeah. Oh, Sorry, I didn't phrase like that one. question very well. <laughs> On the website, there is there's one for if you are a parent filling out the questionnaire for your child, there's one for if you are a teenager, and then there's one if you're an adult filling it out for yourself. So you have choices. And there, it takes about five minutes to do the test. And then what it does at the end is it gives you like a breakdown of what percentage you are of each love language, so that you can see how you can show love in a way that is comfortable for you that you enjoy and that also meets the needs of your children or your spouse. Okay, fantastic. I've learned a lot by doing it myself and my children. <laughs> okay, Whoa. I think we have some time. I, I want to talk a little bit about the comfort zone um, that we're, many of us are stuck in. I mentioned that earlier. Um, how how if I've, if I've got a child that's stuck in that comfort zone that likes to be home, that isn't going out and doing the things that we would have done four years ago, how do I get them to take that very first step to, to take that risk to say, okay, I can do this now. I can do this now. I think it starts with baby steps. Like for me, a baby step is 1% of the final goal. So if the goal is to get them to go and join a sport, maybe the first step is to go outside together and play that sport, just parent and child, if that's something that they feel comfortable with. And then once they feel comfortable with that, maybe you go and you play at the park instead of playing in your yard, or maybe you go and uh, watch a game on a night when there's other sports playing. So you slowly kind of step farther and farther outside the comfort zone. But the way that the comfort zone works is like when you're in your comfort zone, you don't learn anything there. It's all stuff that you already have mastered. That's why you're comfortable with it. The second you step out of the comfort zone, the first thing you feel is fear. 
everyone will feel feel fear. If you it's a if it's your first day at work, you're going to be nervous, you're going to have fears, you're going to worry about things, you're going to judge yourself, you're going to criticize yourself. It's all part of stepping outside of the comfort zone. But if you can successfully push through that fear, then you start to learn things. You start seeing all of the mistakes that you're making and you learn from your mistakes and you become a better version of yourself because you're allowing that fear and that new experience to teach you something new. And once you learn everything from that new experience, it becomes part of your comfort zone. So your comfort zone should always be growing and growing and growing if your goals in life are to complete, to become a better version of yourself. And so when we help our child take that first step out of the comfort zone, and let's talk about kids under the age of 18, our youth, right? Many of them, I mean, think about high school and secondary school. We, we've heard them, you know, uh, online schooling for two years, missing all of those, no clubs, no prom, no sports, no any of the things that kept many of us sane and them sane during those times, right? So I think the positive affirmation when they do something like this, I, I, I like to tell a little story sometimes about um, oh, a young lady in kindergarten and and how we sometimes we sometimes give affirmation for behaviors that we shouldn't be. <laughs> and this young lady kept getting up on the desk, getting up on the desk, getting up on the desk. She thought it was the greatest thing. And what did we as educators do? Because it wasn't safe. We took her down. Every single time she got up on the desk, desk we picked her up and we went and we put her down. We had a big team meeting with the parents and we said, this has to stop. Made it as safe as possible. Every, everyone agreed. And we waited her out. And I'll tell you, it took a long time. But the first time she stepped on that floor, it was like a cheering squad. Wow, look at you on the floor. How wonderful. Yeah. And it took several more times to, to get rid of that behavior and for her to celebrate what she was doing well. And that's a different example in, from the comfort zone outside of COVID. But it's still celebrating what needs to celebrate as opposed to affirming what we shouldn't be affirming. Yeah. So. Are we, are we unintentionally by allowing our kids to stay in this comfort zone because maybe we're there still to ourselves? Are we unintentionally telling them it's okay and leaving them stuck there? I think so. I believe that we are because it's our job as parents to help our kids become the best version of herself, of themselves. And by allowing them to sit in a space where likely they're sitting in the room, they're maybe on electronics, which is literally numbing out their brain. They're not even able to process like thoughts when they're just looking at a screen. And that's why kids like it because they don't have to focus on the fears. They don't have to focus on the worries. It's almost like a drug for like, you know, that's why a lot of people drink. A lot of people drink because they don't want to feel or they don't want to think or those different things. So by allowing our kids to sit and play video games, like from day, from morning to night, they, at what point do they actually have time to think or to hear what their heart has to say or to hear the thoughts that their mind is trying to encourage them to follow? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we get that question quite a bit when we're out speaking in schools and we didn't really talk about uh, whether or not we're going to enter into this conversation. But I love the way you share if if our children are emotionally well, you know, well, how much screen time, how much screen time? There's no real answer to that because we have to know our kids as individuals. But once they know themselves and are emotionally well, then they're going to be able to go through the day, as you say, they'll they're get up for school. They're going to bed at a regular time. They're they're not um, sleep deprived because they're staying up and gaming until 11 o'clock at night. Could you just speak a little bit more about what? how you see this in terms of the the yeah, uh, online piece. And there's lots of positive things that are happening online. There's reading intervention programs. There's, there's reading clubs. There's kids getting, getting together and actually talking to themselves. 
Yeah. And like, each other, uh, sorry. Technology isn't, te- isn't all bad, right? Like we're talking on technology right now. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is a lot of the games are just void where there's no need for thought. So for me, um, video games, it should be, or like it's technology should be balanced with, um, like real life, right? So if at my home, my house, if my son comes home from school and he does all the things he needs to do to contribute to the family and he does them without asking and he goes and plays his video games, he comes and joins us for dinner. And then after dinner, we spend some time together as a family. For me, that's balanced. I don't control or regulate his video game time unless it becomes a problem in other areas of his life. Um, I do think it's important for him to spend at least a half an hour of time doing something like really boring that's going to make him listen to his thoughts inside of him because I think that's where growth comes from. So if you sit outside and you're not doing anything, you're hearing your thoughts, you're hearing the things that you have challenges with. So if you can balance that void time of playing video games with the time where you're using your brain and you're really processing who you are and who you want to be and you're you're showing all those things that you developed appropriately through the stages of Erickson. Like if he's showing autonomy, he's taking care of things and making choices on his own. He's showing initiative and he's doing it without me having to tell him to do things if he's showing that he can he's confident in the things that he's doing to contribute to the family then he's on track so as long as it's not causing problematic behavior with the family or in his school life or anything like that I see the video games as a healthy outlet for emotions like if he like he's an only child so he has no one to fight with he has no one to do those things with so if he's upstairs and he's yelling and getting all his emotions out as long as he's not being rude I'm like good he's getting his emotions out because if he doesn't yell at the people on the video games and he's coming downstairs and he's gonna be yelling at me and I don't want it (laughs) well he's yelling he's doing the virtual thing and yelling at a program too yeah yeah but you know I I have to say though Amber you're you're a social worker and you know you have that you've got that wherewithal right from the beginning in in raising your child well a little bit later as you as you went through that program um, but for those of us who don't have that wherewithal as parents, that's a really that's a really tough one to gauge, and it's the pulling back. And I think what you're saying is, if we if we if my kid does not fit into the description you just said, and it is taking over their lives, then we've got to get them out of that comfort zone by taking that first baby step, and it's got to be something they enjoy. So, um, be there with them, support them, and start to move them into the in into that. Um, the possibilities, I guess, is yeah. the word I want. And every time that they succeed trying something new, it will increase their confidence in themselves and it will increase their confidence and safety with you as a parent. Fantastic. So, wow. Yeah. All right. Well, closing thoughts. Where can our listeners reach you? And uh, what would you like to share with us for the end of the show? Um, you can reach me on my website, which is messmakers.com, mess with three S's. And you can book phone calls or appointments or anything on there. You can see all the programs I run on there and see the books that we've written on there. (laughs) And I guess my closing thoughts would be to empower yourselves as parents. Once you know yourself better, you can show up better for your kids. Beautiful. Thank you for going above and beyond and in all that you do to help us bring joy to our lives and to the lives of our children, Amber. Thank you for having me. I had fun. Awesome. Our guest next week is Dr. Sharon Spano. She's a PhD and is a family business consultant. I know you, why, what has this got to do with taking the helm? Different challenges are faced because of the emotional ties that bind the family system and business together. Sharon is also an author and she's the host of the weekly podcast called The Other Side of Potential, 
which explores the many complexities of our world that often disrupt our ability for ourselves and our families to live a meaningful and prosperous life. Let's check our compass and learn what we need to as we empower our children to face the ups and downs of life, which will surely come. Enjoy your week. Thanks for tuning into today's episode of Taking the Helm. We hope that Lynn and her guests have provided valuable insights on how to create a safe emotional space for your children that empowers them to be their best selves. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.